to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. It's spring again. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, spring means new life. It means great weather. It means we can spend time outside again. It means the cactus are blooming, and one of my favorite things in Tucson is seeing the Ocotillo bloom, too. Spring is when animals come out of hibernation or have babies, like this adorable kitten, who I promise you has only set her tail on fire twice since we adopted her four years ago. All of this new life is beautiful. Spring is the season of beginnings and possibilities. It means Easter is here. Spring is great, but, but it also isn't because spring means allergies. It means that it's about to get really hot out here. I mean, it already is pretty hot out here in Tucson. It means my skin is going to start drying out and looking really gross. It means taxes are due. And by that, I mean taxes are due tomorrow. So get them done. Amidst all of that, amidst all of that, all of this new life anyways, well, it's just going to die. You know, I mean, at this point, I'm starting to feel a bit like Tina about spring. <sighs> hey, Journal. Nothing interesting to report. Just another rainy spring day. Isn't spring supposed to be full of promise and new growth and crap like that? It's given me nothing. The most exciting thing that's happened to me lately was when I thought we got a new bar of soap in the kitchen, but it was a peeled potato. Oh. Oh. Didn't get my hands clean at all. Uh... Aw, Tina, I ain't seeing you like this, all poopy and droopy. Here, now you don't have to see me. You're gonna be okay. You're just in a bit of a, a funk. I believe she's suffering from a case of moody teenitis. She's gotta get her teenitis booster. Uh, is this funk ever gonna go away? I mean, it's spring. It's supposed to be a time of change, adventure. Hay fever. Taxes. Hot spring flings where you roll around in blooming flowers, getting grass stains everywhere. Hmm. It's like Tina says, spring is supposed to mean new things. A fresh start and possibility. But let me tell you, nothing is truly new under the sun. Tina is right. Everything just repeats year after year after year. So does any of it really matter? The flowers will bloom again, but then they'll just die again. The weather will get nice, but then it'll get hot again. Apple will release the newest iPhone that's gonna render yours obsolete. We'll go see the 10th different actor portray Batman and the 32nd Marvel movie. This spring, you know, your sophomore year is going to end, but well, then junior year begins and you're just going to classes again and again, same as always. Nothing is really new. And then, I mean, let's face it, these last few years have felt especially meaningless as we have been stuck in this never ending pandemic. It, it has been impossible to look forward in any meaningful way. Instead, we just feel stuck in constant fear and caution. Even now, it may, it may feel, it may appear like we are getting through it, but I mean, hasn't experience taught us that, I mean, some new variant like Zeta is just gonna come around, spurring another surge of infections and precautions that just leave us feeling exhausted and listless. 
it feels less like a season for beginnings and possibilities than an annual reminder that everything is the same and nothing is going to change. And it feels just as true for ourselves. It's been another year at the job that you thought would just be temporary or, or lead to something better. It's been another year in a relationship that just is not going anywhere. It's been another year and you feel no closer to your dreams and goals, whether professionally or relationally. You feel stuck spiritually, just in a meandering dance with God that is never quite in step. You feel stuck emotionally. Your anger is no better. Your depression still sucks and your anxiety still has you worrying about everything. It's April and just like last year, you've already given up on all your big plans for growth and change for the year. Do you feel like you need to be made new or does that just sound like an empty promise? Now, maybe this feels like a dour start to an Easter message, but I mean, come on, even Easter comes around every year. We make a big deal out of it. Maybe we have a picnic or we sing some special worship songs or hide some eggs. But at this point, it all just feels the same. Nothing is new. We've done it all before. Now, maybe this sounds harsh, but guess what? This same sentiment is in the Bible. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we hear there is nothing new under the sun. In Ecclesiastes, we hear the voice of the teacher who offers us wisdom, but it's very different. It's a very different sort of wisdom from what we read in a book like Proverbs. I mean, because in Proverbs, life is simple. Wisdom's rewarded. Foolishness fails. But in practice, we know life is messier than that. And the teacher debunks conventional wisdom and pious talk in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, we encounter the messiness of life as the teacher searches for meaning under the sun. Along with us, the teacher, you know, we seek meaning in work. But that never seems to go anywhere. So we seek meaning in having fun and enjoying life. But it's all fleeting and temporary, so what does it matter? If everything ends, does anything have meaning? Life is full of, of patterns and rhythms, of beginnings and endings, seasons of rest and of work. And Ecclesiastes speaks to these in the teacher's search for meaning. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore the words of the teacher in our series, Four Seasons. And today, on what may just feel like yet another Easter Sunday, we turn to the teacher as he searches for anything new. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. The word in Hebrew is havel, and we find it translated as vanity of vanities, meaningless or perfectly pointless. But it literally means mist, vapor, breath. It is a cry lamenting the disparity between our plans and expectations with reality, which undermines wisdom and meaning. It also connotes ephemerality and fragility. All of these things are like smoke or vapor. They're real. We can see it, but we cannot grab it. When we try, it disappears. Newness is meaningless. Pursuing it is pointless. We will get nothing for all our work as all of this is a chase 
after something that we can never quite grasp. It is all Havel, vapor. There's nothing new. Now, the teacher doesn't just declare to us that there is nothing new under the sun. He backs it up. He brings the receipts. So there are a few reasons for this that the teacher gets into that we'll see this morning. Now, first, he explains that newness is meaningless. Well, because the work of the world is never done. Let's, let's see how he explains this. The teacher continues in verses 4 through 7. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then it turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. The sun rises and sets again. It's always the same. Rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. Long after we're gone, the work of the world goes on, same as ever, because the work is never done. The wind blows one way, then the next, but then it never stops. Or to put all of this in Tucson terms, uh, there's always road construction going on, but yet the potholes are never full. The teacher recognizes that the work of the world is never done, and it's going to go on without us. All of it is endless, ever-repeating and never-ending cycles. So we'll never really experience anything new in the world because all of it's going to just forever be in process. We will die and we'll be forgotten, but that stream will still be flowing and that pothole is still unfilled. Now, second, nothing is new because we are stuck in old cycles that just keep on repeating. We continue in verses 8 and 9 of Ecclesiastes. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. If this is how the world works that the work is never done, but just goes on forever? Well, think of us then. I mean, what are we ever gonna accomplish? We are, we'll all live and then die. And these rhythms of creation just go on without us. We'll never see it or hear it all. What difference will we make? Can we truly do or experience anything new? No, because instead we just repeat history and we just get stuck in old broken cycles. In the Bible, we, we can witness a few examples of these, like of these broken cycles of the people of God, which the teacher and his audience at the time, they'd be quite familiar with these. There's the cycle of the altar. The people sin, make a sacrifice at the altar, and then they receive forgiveness. But then they sin again, and the cycle starts over. Now, to us, this system of sacrifice feels barbaric and unjust, but it was a gift from God that prevented escalation of, of bigger and more dramatic sacrifices. But unfortunately, God's people could not sustain it. And it only led to a constant cycle. Now, there was also the, uh, the cycle of repentance. Again and again, the Israelites are rescued by God from their oppressors to only disobey and fall away again until they face God's punishment and the consequences of their disobedience. 
Yet God is faithful and rescues them again and again through Moses and the judges. And he calls them to repentance through the prophets. It's just a repeated cycle. Now we too experience the broken cycles of our lives. We can get stuck in the cycle of discontent. We try something new and and maybe it fulfills us for a time, but then we grow discontent and we seek something else and the cycle repeats. Or we can get we can get caught up in a cycle of achievement. We we work hard to achieve more. We want to accomplish a goal, but then we see someone else who's doing even more. So we think that we must do even more to keep up and we work even harder so then they match and work harder to pass us back up. Now, this was my wife's experience when she was considering med school, and she saw how the culture around around it fostered a competition around busyness. I mean, who could study the most hours for the MCAT? Who could volunteer the most to bolster their resume? It was an endless cycle of achievement. But it is like the teacher writes, we can never learn everything, see everything, hear everything, or say everything. So much will be left undone. These broken cycles are all like a downward spiral that only points us inward towards selfishness or endless achievement. Perhaps the only thing that can really break us out of these cycles is burnout. Now third, the teacher argues that nothing is new, it's only forgotten. We conclude this section of his writings with verses 10 and 11. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one's going to remember what we are doing now. In all that time, nothing we do or experience will be truly new. It's all been done before. We're just repeating the past and what others have done before us. We've only forgotten and convinced ourselves that it is new. And just like we forget the past, well, we're going to be forgotten in the future. Even the work of the world and creation is simply repeating. Nature cannot really achieve anything new. It's only continuing its work. So how are we to produce anything new ourselves? We simply repeat ourselves. It's all never-ending, except for our own lives, which will, one, which will end one day while the world goes on and forgets us. It's all vapor that we are reaching for. It's all like chasing the wind. So in conclusion, there's nothing new under the sun. If we are searching for meaning among newness, we're not going to find it because there is nothing new under the sun. Newness is meaningless. Newness is Havel. But we don't end there. Meaning does not come from what is new. It comes from the one who makes us new. While there may be nothing new under the sun, we can turn our attention beyond ourselves and beyond this world. While we can produce nothing new and the world can produce nothing new, the message of Easter... The message that we have gathered to proclaim today is not that there is nothing new under the sun, but that God makes things new. This is foretold 
by the prophets. We read in Isaiah 43, 19, For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. Isaiah makes this proclamation of salvation to people who had ceased to hope, who declare, hevel, hevel, meaningless. There is nothing new. These cycles are just going to repeat again and again. We'll never break free of the altar. We'll never be rescued again. To this, God says, I am doing a new thing. God reminds them, first of the Exodus, when, when they were led through the wilderness and God provided clean water in the desert. But now in Isaiah, God declares that something new is coming. Something new that is so tremendous and overwhelming that it will overshadow the old things. Isaiah's proclamation of salvation of something truly new is then fulfilled by the resurrection. This is proclaimed in all the Gospels as we read today from Matthew chapter 28. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see the body, or come see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. So the women, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them. And greeted them, and they ran to him. They grasped his feet and worshipped him. Say it with me. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. The resurrection was truly new. It was something unheard of. Never before seen in the world or in history. We can see that, that this, how new this was, how unexpected this was in the response from Jesus' own disciples, who did not believe it at first when the women came to tell them, even though Jesus has been telling them all along that it would happen. This, though, was unimaginable. It, this, this was more than Jesus healing the sick or reversing death. Despite those miracles, those people would still die again one day. But this was something truly new, and it defied all expectations. And we see the newness of the resurrection and its shocking consequences throughout history. You see, normally after someone dies, their legacy in the world fades quickly. Those whose impact lasts are often incredibly well known at the time of their death. Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, Socrates, Napoleon, and Muhammad all had immense reputations at the, at the time of their death. But when Jesus died, 
It seemed like his small movement had failed and his influence was at an end. But he inverted the pattern. Because instead of his movement ending, his movement continued on in, a mirac in, in many miraculous ways. For example, despite their initial shock and disbelief, the disciples, the, the, that ragtag group of misfits, spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the truth of the resurrection and the glory of Jesus Christ. They did not just believe that he was God, they had seen it with their own eyes. He told them that he was the Messiah, and he said that he would die and be raised from the dead. They saw him resurrected, and they weren't the only ones. Thousands of people in Jerusalem saw Jesus after his crucifixion. They could not deny that truth, even when faced with threats of violence, if they didn't deny it. Instead, they went to their deaths declaring the truth that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they were convinced he was God. When there was no benefit to themselves amidst hostile cultures, they continued to declare this incredible truth. People don't die for lies. If I knew something was false, I would never continue to claim that it was true when my life was on the line. And neither would you. And they didn't either. But it was not just them. Men like Paul, who ruthlessly persecuted Christians, and James, Jesus' brother, who was skeptical of Jesus' claims before his death and resurrection, they themselves became Christians who died for their faith. The Apostle Paul, who wrote huge portions of the New Testament, was at one time a young religious Jew who persecuted the very first followers of Jesus with a murderous zeal. He would find the people who believed in Jesus and have them killed until he himself met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul and his life was changed. He saw it with his own eyes and, and he changed from a murderous opponent to the greatest advocate for Jesus in the first century. He was almost single-handedly responsible for the spread of the way of Jesus beyond Jerusalem. And this is why we call our community Damascus Road. Because we want to be a place that, for, for people to experience something entirely new. To have a chance to encounter Jesus and have their lives changed. Then there's James, the brother of Jesus. In the Gospels, only Jesus' mother Mary is depicted as believing that he is the Son of God. All of his siblings found their brother to be a bit off. Until the resurrection, that is. Because once Jesus came back from the dead, his brother James became a great leader of the church. Eventually the primary leader in Jerusalem, and he wrote the book of James. I ask you, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? Anything less than rise from the dead? Jesus' brother James believed, after a long time of skepticism before radically reversing course. James is one of the greatest reasons to believe in the resurrection, and Paul is right behind them. And both James and Peter were killed for their belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead and was God. Now finally, in the immediate time after his resurrection, we can read in Acts how a huge number of Jews became Christians. This is significant because, I mean, 10,000 Jews gave up or altered the foundation of their religious and cultural heritage all at once, to follow a man that the Roman Empire had just put to death. This heritage 
that had been protected for thousands of years and kept them distinct as a people, preserving them throughout exile and oppression. But because they were in Jerusalem at the time that these miraculous events of, of Easter and the time after occurred, the foundations of their faith were changed. Jesus was more famous a hundred years after his death than he was at the time of his death, and his impact was greater than it ever was during his life. And it has continued to grow, multiplying constantly. Jesus' resurrection led to his incredible impact on history in undeniable and incredibly unlikely ways, and his movement has continued over 2,000 years until today. This is unprecedented in history, and it, and it proves how one event, this, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, was truly new. Now, the resurrection does not contradict Ecclesiastes, but rather the words of the teacher actually point forward to Jesus. It is a presence through absence. Because if there can be nothing new under the sun, then we must look beyond the sun of the cosmos to the sun of of God to witness something truly new. So look back at the lessons of the teacher through this new perspective of the resurrection. Now first, the world's work may never be done, but Jesus' work is done. Paul declares so in Romans chapter 6. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. The significance of the resurrection is that it, that it only had to happen once to change everything. It was a singular event that has had continuous reverberating and repeating impact. It demonstrated that everything Jesus claimed was truly from God. So not only did it extend God's grace to creation, it has multiplied and had further impact throughout history. Jesus never married, but the way he treated women raised them up and led others to recognize their equal dignity as children of God. Jesus had no children, but his kindness for them led them and led others to value them as people. Jesus wrote no books, but his call to love God with all our minds created a reverence for learning. Jesus held no office and led no army, but his example led to the end of emperor worship. From his example, words such as endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights entered history. His example of compassion for the least of these inspired us to create hospitals and relief efforts. Jesus' work was done, and it produced many new things throughout history that we can experience today. Furthermore, Jesus' death was the final sacrifice, and, and his resurrection makes new life available to be received and experienced forever and always afterwards. Grace is freely available to us all. There is nothing we must do to earn it. There is nothing we can do to earn it. It is experienced again and again every time someone receives God's grace. But Jesus himself has already risen his work is done, and we still experience it today. Second, through the resurrection, we receive new rhythms to replace our old stuck cycles. As the women who discovered the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday searched for Jesus' body, they met an angel who asked them, 
Why are you looking for the looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. With Jesus, our old ways are dead. There is no life to be found among them as we are invited into new rhythms of life. It is a new cycle as we die to our sin and are made new by God. We can experience this new life today as we are freed from sin. We are not just waiting for waiting to die so God can bring us back to life in heaven, but instead we are invited into the new cycle of life. Death, resurrection, new life. The miracle of the new cycle of life is that we can experience this life today. We are not just waiting to die so God can bring us back to life in heaven. This cycle repeats in our lives as we die to our sin and we are remade by God. It points us outward. It leads us up and out, pushing us to love others, trust God, and find renewal. Instead of broken cycles, it is marked by the new rhythms that we receive from Jesus. Jesus demonstrates for us the rhythms of service, where we serve others as Jesus served us, leading to rhythms of reciprocity as we care for one another. Jesus also calls us to the rhythm of love, where we break out of the cycles of violence and competition in the world by choosing love as Jesus did over power and domination. And finally, we can encounter the rhythm of celebration. Regular reminders of the life that Jesus offers us, such as our practices of weekly communion and worship together, or our annual celebrations of Christmas and Easter. Now, this list of life-giving rhythms is by no means exhaustive, but it does lead us into the final revelation that the resurrection event offers to us amidst Ecclesiastes. We remember the new thing God has done and we celebrate it. In Ecclesiastes, we discover with the teacher that there is meaning in rhythms. The poem of Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. In Ecclesiastes, meaning comes from the rhythms. The teacher goes on to declare that there is a time for life and a time for death, a time for work and a time for rest. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a proper time for all of these things. The significance is not only in the newness of the event, but of the return. We come back to it. On this side of eternity, it is meaningful that things end but come back again. Jesus was God, but then came back. Then he ascended, but then he sent the Spirit back to us. The meaning of Easter is that we come back every year to remind ourselves We come back to the event of the resurrection yearly to remind ourselves of its meaning, to be renewed by it, to re-encounter the grace and redemption of Christ's resurrection again and again. And it is a time for celebration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This Easter, we may feel like there is nothing new under the sun. But God makes things new. We return to this every year in the rhythm of Easter celebration. So I ask you, let this rhythm remind you. We need reminders amidst a world that feels like nothing is new and that there's nothing to hope for. It is so easy to forget why we celebrate and why we have hope because the world feels so challenging and heavy or so monotonous 
and repetitive. We remind ourselves so that we do not forget the new life and grace that God offers to us. In remembering, we discover the the hope that God offers that breaks us free from the ceaseless repetitions of these old cycles of life. Let Easter, this year and every year, remind you of the hope we have and the new life that God offers. Next, I challenge you to let this rhythm renew you. We need renewal. Life is not how it was meant to be. God made us for joy in the garden and oneness with God and each other. But that's not what we experience because of sin and brokenness. Reflect on your life. What parts of your life need renewal? What must be given to God? Are you trapped in one of the old cycles seeking life among the dead instead of with God? Release those things that do not give life but instead leave you feeling like there is nothing new under the sun and then accept Jesus' invitation into new life and to the new rhythms that he offers to us. Finally, I invite you, let this rhythm redeem you. If this is all new to you, if you have never heard about the new things that God has done and is doing in the world by the bloody cross of Jesus' death and the empty tomb of his resurrection, then maybe today, is the day for you to encounter the grace of God for the very first time and allow God to begin the work of reshaping and reforming you. I invite you to take this step of faith towards God, to enter into new life and to receive the new rhythms that Christ is offering to you. Now, as we come to a close, I admit it is ironic for us to have a series called Four Seasons when here in Tucson, we only have two. Monsoon and hot. Now, last year's monsoon season was pretty special. It had so much rain. It was incredible. Just all the time from July into October, it was raining. Now, during this same season of rain, multiple friends of ours experienced multiple miscarriages. Now, one of the last ones was particularly heartbreaking because they were due about a week before my son Joe is due this summer. Now, several months before all this happened, before the monsoon season and the season of miscarriages, um, I started going to a park in Tucson to spend an hour with God in silence and solitude. And over this time, I had found, I had found it to be a life-giving practice and rhythm. But one day, it was a lot more than that. The monsoon rains had slowed down, and it was a pretty nice day out. But I was in the midst of processing a lot of pain and grief mixed with the joy of my wife's pregnancy. A good example of how messy life can be and how grief and joy exist in a really sharp tension with one another. I was walking along the Loop Trail out from Brandy Fenton Park on the north side of Tucson. Now this part of the trail is right along the Rito River. But if you know Tucson, you know that it is called a river in memory only. There's no water. It's a dry, dusty gulch. Now, even with a good rain, some water may pool in the dry riverbed, and you could even call uh, some of it a stream if you're being generous, as water flows from, you know, one pool to the next. But as I walked that day, trying to get some answer from God about what was happening in my community and amongst my friends, I saw that there wasn't, there weren't only pools of water in the riverbed, but there was real flowing water. 
That day, because of all of the rain, from months of the rainiest monsoon season I had ever experienced, the Rito River was actually a river. Talk about making rivers flow in the wasteland. Then I turned to the north and I really saw how green the mountains were. They were so green. And just covered in life. We're in a desert. That doesn't happen. I found myself between flowing waters and green hills. And it was beautiful. And it was unbelievable. And it felt truly miraculous and new. Amid pain and grief, God reminded me who makes the mountains green and the rivers flow. God met me in the tension of sorrow and joy, of death and life with a reminder. And it is what we remember every Easter and every spring. If you came into, into today feeling that there is nothing new, that everything is the same, that, that it's all meaningless and hopeless because all life must die well, then I hope that you can leave here with the message of Easter and of spring. God makes the flowers bloom, the mountains green, and the rivers flow. Life comes after death, and God makes things new. And God promises this to us now and always. As we read in Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the, the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning in the end, to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Today, as we feel like the pandemic may never end, like we may never break free of the old rhythms of life that lead only to discontentment, exhaustion, and death, or, or like that there is no hope in the world, hear this promise. God is the beginning and the end. There will be the day when there is no more death or mourning or pain as God makes the flowers bloom, the mountains green and the rivers flow. Life comes after death and God makes things new. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it's Easter again and I thank you for that. I thank you for the reminder of today, of the chance every year to come back to the cross and to the tomb and to encounter the grace and the miracle of the resurrection, Lord. 
In a world where nothing feels like it is truly new, Lord, this is the one thing in all of history that was miraculously new, that changed everything, that reshapes everything, that invites us into new life with you. Lord, you make the mountains green, you make the flowers bloom, you make the rivers flow, and you make us new. We praise you, Lord, in your whole in your holy name I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.